Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and today I'm back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We'll continue into the last week of Volume 3 of the Roman series entitled The Progress of the Gospel. So join Dr. Newfeld as we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 10, verses 10 to 13, with a message entitled Assurance of Salvation. The story is told of a man attending a conference on salvation. An argument had erupted and the group divided into two. On the one side of the room were those who believed in predestination, and on the other side were those who believed in free will. Well, as it happened to be, one man was left standing in the middle, struggling which group he should belong to. He wasn't sure, but finally decided to go over to the predestination side. As he walked over, he was asked, why are you here? And he said, well, I decided to come over here. It was my free choice. Immediately, he was told, well, clearly you don't belong here. You need to go to the other side. And so he wandered over to the other camp, and there he was also asked, why are you here? And he answered, well, I was sent. Well, as you can guess, that didn't work out either. And some of us can identify with that. Am I choosing Christ, or was I sent to him by the Father? Which camp do I belong to? Now, if you've been listening to this series on Romans 9 to 11, you might be feeling like that man. You're not sure which group you should belong to. For on the one hand, the scripture is very clear. According to Romans 9.11, we were told of God's purposes in election and his sovereign choosing of Jacob over Esau, or in verse 18, that he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. But now we've come to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and we're told of the necessity of confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and actively believing in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. And depending upon a number of factors, you might think that you belong in one camp or in the other. I think there are good ways of helping us understand how we can reconcile both of these positions. That is, that we've been both chosen by the Father and yet that we must actively choose to repent and believe. But at the outset, Let's just make up our minds that both of these matters are equally true. God elects or chooses his own. The Bible teaches that in many places. Ephesians 1.4 says to believers, he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth. At the same time, John 3.16 tells us, whoever believes in him should not perish. God chooses his own and we must act to believe in him. And so without even an attempt to reconcile those two things, the call to the believer and the assurance of God's eternal sovereign choice of his own, I wonder, can we simply commit ourselves at the outset to believing all that the Bible teaches about our salvation? Even if you don't yet know how to put those two things together, simply commit that you're not going to deny what the Bible clearly teaches. I think it's a good place to start. Now, Romans 10 verse 9 has given assurance of salvation. In order to understand whether or not you belong to God, have your sins forgiven, know the certainty of an eternal future. Indeed, might I add, in order to know whether the Father has chosen you from eternity past, Romans 10 9 simply says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, that statement is categorical. Of course, it's not easy believism. It is an act of surrender to Jesus as Lord. 
but in case you should say, yes, but how can I know whether I'm one of the elect? Paul responds, if you confess and believe, you are saved. And that's categorical. Indeed, the grammar of verse 9 comes as an if-then statement. If this is so, then the other is also or equally true. If you confess and believe, then you will be saved. Or all who confess and believe are all saved. It's a promise as well as a command to believe. And the promise is certain. Now let's keep reading Romans 10, 10 to 13. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I notice several important features in this passage. At the start, notice the word everyone. Then two times the word all, and then followed again by the word everyone. It seems as if the Holy Spirit wants to make it clear that the principle stated in verse 9, that if we confess and believe we are saved, well, there are no exceptions to that. Okay, let's examine some of the details of the passage. We notice that the passage begins with the word for. That word can also be translated as because or even with the word since. Now, that little three-letter word in the Greek, the word gar, signals what grammarians call a causal clause. Now, I mention that because Romans 10 verses 10 to 13 explains to us how it is the cause of why Romans 10 verse 9 is true. Is it really that simple? Are all who believe and confess saved? How can it be that simple? And so let's listen to Paul's explanation. Indeed, Paul offers three distinct and important reasons why it is that all who confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead are saved. Indeed, over against the Pharisees and the Jewish religious teachers who taught that law-keeping was the means of salvation, Paul argues that confession and belief are the means of salvation. So let's hear Paul's first explanation why that's so. And this first explanation has everything to do with what happens when one believes. It's as if Paul is saying, don't you understand the nature of faith? Faith never was and faith never will be simple intellectual assent or a simple agreement on some basic facts. Let's watch Paul's reasoning closely. The first thing that happens, he says, is that the heart believes. It's not that the mind believes or that the emotions believe, but rather it's the heart that believes. Now let's understand what the Bible says about the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, that is from your heart, flow the springs of life. Indeed, if life flows from the heart, we assume, therefore, that the heart is the operation center that directs all of our life. According to the Bible, the heart is the center of all human existence. Our intellect, our emotions, our volition, or the trigger for the choices that we make, and what we deeply love and what we passionately hate, all of this flows from the center of our being, which is called the heart. The heart is that which controls who we are. I love what French philosopher Blaise Pascal said about the heart. 
He said the heart has its reasons the mind knows nothing of. Now, what was he saying? He meant that which the mind chooses to believe is often unknown to the mind. He meant that first we believe something, and then after we believe, we build a series of intellectual reasons with our mind to justify what it is that we believe. You know, some time ago, I remember watching a debate regarding the writings of C.S. Lewis, and it was between a Christian and an atheist. At some time during that debate, the atheist said something which really did reveal it all. He said he decided to become an atheist during his early university days because all the atheists that he knew seemed to be a lot more fun to be with than Christians. Well, there we have it. The heart has its reasons the mind knows nothing of. First, this atheist believed being directed by his heart, and then afterward, his mind engaged in order to justify the decisions of his heart. Now, I'm going to argue that's true of all of us. There is no such thing as a decision for or against God based upon pure reason or anything remotely like that. No reason only justifies that which the heart deeply loves. And so Paul says, with the heart one believes. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no intellectual reasons why we should believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I mean, the mere fact that only 20 years after the resurrection, Paul would write of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, where he would say, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. See, that would mean that anyone who wanted could interview uh, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection one could establish through hundreds of eyewitnesses that the event happened. That and the fact that the tomb was empty, that the enemies of Christ couldn't produce the body of Jesus, that and the fact that the dispirited followers of Jesus were suddenly transformed into bold proclaimers. Well, the historical evidence for the resurrection is indeed overwhelming. Reason does point to the fact of the resurrection. But it was not reason that first believed. It was the heart. It was the center of our being that believed and found in the resurrection the highest reason for that which our soul so deeply and so passionately loves. Well, we're going to continue with that much more to consider when Dr. Neufeld returns in just a moment. Well, a regular listener from Ontario wrote, It is absolutely refreshing to know that we have such an awesome Bible-based teacher on this side of the border. I've signed up for the daily audio mail, and words are not enough to express my genuine thanks. May Almighty God continue to bless and increase the work being done through Dr. Neufeld and the staff at Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we're so grateful, grateful for our listeners, supporters, and the ministry that God has allowed us to participate in. If you'd like to help us sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry, find out all the free resources available, or just discover more about Back to the Bible Canada. You can call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We have said that it is the heart or the center of our being which dictates our loves and our hates, and it is the heart that has believed or passionately embraced that Jesus is Lord. 
It's not like a math equation. Do you believe that two plus two equals four? Or do you believe that Jesus was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead? Yes, he was raised from the dead. It is intellectually believable. But that doesn't yet get at it. The heart must embrace this with its all-consuming passion. Now, Romans 10 verse 10 says, For it is with the heart one believes and is justified. I know that it is not evident in English, but in the Greek, the word justified and the word righteous is the same word. And in Romans, Paul describes God's righteousness being applied to the one who believes. Having believed with the heart, he says, one is counted as a righteous man or a righteous woman. The rest of Romans teaches us how that is. And then he adds, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, the implication is simple. Once the heart believes, the mouth speaks of what the heart delights in. Ask a young woman recently engaged. She is telling everyone of what delights her heart. The same is true of the Christian. For once the heart embraces Christ with joy, the mouth can't shut up. And so I began by saying that Paul is describing three reasons why it is that believing and confessing equals salvation. The first reason is that believing is no small thing. Believing is a passionate embrace of Christ. And then Paul gives his second reason why believing and confessing equals salvation. And that reason is found in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It would seem then that the first reason is that believing involves our entire being. The second reason is that this has always been the message of the entire Bible. At no time and in no place was there ever any different message than that one. Now here Paul is quoting from Isaiah 28 verse 16. Now, when we actually look up Isaiah 28, 16, we're going to notice that the verse reads a bit differently than the way that Paul quotes it. Now, the reason for that is that Paul is writing in Greek, and most of his quotes from the Old Testament are taken from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And as almost always the case, there may be a bit of a difference in the reading of the original Hebrew Old Testament and its Greek translation, but in this case, we find out that the meaning remains precisely the same. Let me explain that. Well, we'll go back to Isaiah 28, verse 16. There we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, or a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And so we notice that the original Isaiah seems to have the word haste or hurriedness in mind rather than the word shame, as Paul quotes in Romans. The New International Version is interesting, for it translates Isaiah 28:16 as, See, I lay in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Again, the ESV, which tends to be more of a literal translation, translates it as haste. The NIV, which tends to be more of a paraphrase, uses the word panic. And the Greek version that Paul quotes in Romans uses the word shame. So the one who believes will not be in haste or will not panic or will not be put to shame. You know, for us, the question is, what was Isaiah trying to say? Well, the background to that verse has to do with Isaiah describing God's judgment that's going to fall on Jerusalem for her sins. 
In the very next verse, in Isaiah 28, verse 17, Isaiah says that hail will sweep away the refuge of lies in which the people of Israel have trusted. And then he says that God's waters are going to overwhelm the man-made shelters that the unrighteous leaders of Jerusalem have erected. Nothing that the unrighteous do will prevent the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. Nothing will stop God's judgment. God is going to judge Jerusalem for her sins, and nothing will prevent that event, no matter how hard men try. That brings us back to Isaiah 28, verse 16. Those who believe are those who trust in the Lord. Well, in the midst of the horror to come, those people will have a cornerstone or a sure foundation. When the waters of God's judgment sweep through, those who believe will have a place to stand. They should trust in God when things get tough. That means they won't be in haste. Again, in the context of Isaiah's time, those who didn't believe were panicking. They could see that the Babylonians were trying to destroy the city, and so in haste or in panic, they ran out and quickly formed an unholy alliance with Egypt, thinking that their combined power could stave off the onslaught of the Babylonian army, but it wouldn't work. All their alliances would be swept away like a lean-to shelter in a great flood. But the one who trusted in God would be safe, or as Paul uses the text, would not be ashamed. The ones who trusted in Egypt would be ashamed, but not those who had faith in the Lord. Now, why is Paul quoting this verse in Isaiah? You see, this for Paul is but one example in the Old Testament in which the difference between those who were saved and those who were damned was faith. And that has always been the difference between salvation and damnation. And, says Paul, the entire Old Testament teaches just that. And by the way, that's the reason why we need to read our Bible as one book and not as two. It's not as if people in the Old Testament had their sins forgiven by law-keeping and by temple sacrifices, and we in the New Testament get our sins forgiven by faith. That simply is not the way the Bible reads. For instance, in Psalm 51, after his sin of adultery and murder, David says, and I'm reading from verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. See, David knew that in the law of God, for murder and adultery, this was punishable by death. Nothing in the temple ritual forgave anyone of murder or adultery. And so rather than appealing to the sacrificial offerings, David appeals to the hesed, or the covenant love of God. He, in faith, believes God is able to forgive him. See, the same is true of Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it, that is, his faith, or his heart's trust in God, was counted to him as righteousness. I love what Daniel Fuller, the theologian, wrote. Of course, Abraham did not understand how the righteous God could devise a way to remain righteous while forgiving him of such sins as lying about his wife and selling her into a harem. But when God told Abraham that his faith in God's promises made him righteous in the sense of being forgiven of his sins, Abraham knew that God had somehow devised a way to make it unnecessary to punish him for his sins. 
Of course, that reason why God could forgive Abraham and David and the people who trusted in God during the Babylonian deportation has everything to do with the fact that Jesus would die for their sins and rise from the dead. But that's the point, says Paul. No one has ever had their sins forgiven outside of believing in their heart and confessing with their mouth. That is the one message found in the entire Bible. So let's move on to Romans 10, 12 to 13. Paul now gives the third and final reason why all it takes is to confess and believe. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you think about it, Jews and Gentiles are divided at every significant point. They're divided racially and culturally and religiously. But regardless of all the differences, one thing remains constant. Both in the condemnation of sin and in the grace that comes through the cross, there is no difference, there is no distinction. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the only distinction will always be this one thing. Will you trust in God and in the promises that he has made in Jesus? You see, for Jews and Gentiles, the question is always the question of Jesus. During my years of pastoral ministry, I've come to realize what an impediment Jesus is to the faith of many. And yet, what a wonderful place to stand he is as well. Both Jews and Gentiles have but one question before them. Will you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? John, that was a great message. I want to ask one question, though. You know, you did an excellent job of helping us understand that even though there are so many people in the First Testament that that were saved, they did so before Christ died for them. Now, can you help us understand that a little bit clearer? Yeah, they, they trusted in the promises of God, the promises that they knew, they wholeheartedly embraced, even though they wouldn't yet have understood how it is that a righteous God could forgive them? How does he remain righteous and is merciful at the same time? See, that explanation finally comes out in the cross, and the cross is the fulfillment of all that they had longed for. A great message. Thanks so much for joining us on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Many Christians today, especially young adults, are confused about what the Bible has to say about sexual identity. Others feel unprepared when asked about their beliefs in regards to homosexuality or transgenderism and the like. The most important question we can ask ourselves in the midst of the sexual revolution we're in is what does the Bible have to say about our sexuality and our identity? That's it. If we can answer that question clearly, in a way that the next generation can understand and believe in, then we'll have equipped them to engage our broken world. This fall, our young adult ministry, In Doubt, is putting on its first In Doubt Live event, all about sexual identity. The event is dedicated to offering the next generation clear biblical truth in regards to sexuality and identity. There'll be a great time of worship, keynote speakers including Dr. John Newfeld of Back to the Bible Canada, leader of Ethos, Young Adults Pastor Dave Johnson, Isaac Dagno, leader of Endowed Ministries, and others to be announced. The evening will also include a Q&A forum, so come with your concerns and your questions. 
In Doubt Live, Sexual Identity is happening on Thursday, October 27th at 6.30 at the Clova Theatre in Surrey. There's no cost, so join us. Bring a friend or make it an event for your young adult group. For event details, visit live.indoubt.ca. And if you don't live in the area, In Doubt Live will be presented on Facebook Live, so make sure you're following In Doubt on Facebook.